Welcome to the Valley of the Suns podcast, part of the Fansided Podcast Network. Here's your host, Gerald Borgay. Welcome, Valley boys and girls, to another episode of the Valley of the Suns podcast, part of the Fansided Podcast Network. I'm your host, Gerald Borgay. And we're coming off a really good stretch of incredible guests that we've had on the show. Um, last episode, we had Mike Lisboa to talk Suns and 30 Coins. Before that, we had Paul Richardson, who uh, came on and we talked about Judas and the Black Messiah. We've had Trevon Edwards come on and we've talked about Malcolm and Marie. A lot of great guests uh, over the last few episodes, and we're hoping to keep that streak going moving forward. But for today's show, going to be a little bit quicker. We're just going to do a, a solo spot with yours truly. So for the last week or so, the Suns have been a roller coaster of emotions, as is always the case with this team, it feels like. Um, you know, they had that, they were blowing out a shorthanded Nets team that was playing without Kevin Durant and uh, without Kyrie Irving. And then of course, James Harden happens. The Suns do what they've done a couple of times this year. They lost to an inferior opponent despite building an early double digit lead. Um, so that was a rough start. But then they got back on track a little bit uh, with the win over the Pelicans. And honestly, that one was kind of troublesome too, because for three quarters of that game, they did not look like the better team. They were just kind of going through the motions. It didn't really seem like anyone outside of Chris Paul was really there, invested. Um, they trailed by 11 heading into that fourth quarter. And then, boom, they just have this incredible fourth quarter. They light it up from three. Their defense clamps down. Um, they outscored the Pelicans 42 to 11 in that fourth quarter. And that was after the Pelicans had cracked hundred points through the first three quarters. So really unexpected, incredible turnaround. A lot of people contributed to that. Deandre Ayton, Chris Paul was obviously the guy, but Ayton did a great job. Jay Crowder, Cam Johnson, um, each one more Monty Williams credited those three guys with coming in to start that fourth quarter and kind of changing the tone right there. So that was a good bounce back win. And then they kind of carried that momentum forward in a Grizzlies blowout that um, don't think we saw coming. Poor Justice Winslow. He plays for the first time in like 13, 14 months, whatever it was. Last time he played, it was before the pandemic. Poor guy comes in his first game back and they lose by like 30. Um, and in that game, Chris Paul made a little bit of history. He became or he passed Oscar Robertson for sixth all time on the NBA's assist list. Um, which is an incredible accomplishment for him, just speaks to his longevity and just how good he is as a teammate. And um, that kind of segues into our quote of the week this week. We haven't done this segment in a while, but wanted to get back to this one because coming off such a feel-good moment, that's the type of thing that all of his teammates and his coach, Monty Williams, were all uh, sharing in this incredible accomplishment, even though they haven't been, a lot of them haven't been teammates with Chris Paul for a while only a couple months, um, you could just tell that that locker room was incredibly proud and, and happy to be a part of that history of what he accomplished. Um, and after the game campaign was kind of asked about that moment, about Chris Paul passing the big O and, and just went what went on in the locker room when Monty came in there. And this is what he had to say. Um, I mean, he just came in and let everybody know um, that he did some amazing once again. And uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> we gave him the game ball. Uh, that's, that's, that's big time for C. 
Um, and it's and it's and it's man, crazy to be a part of it and uh, to be out there on the floor and being able to learn and see that. But in the locker room, man, uh, we gave him the game ball, uh, gave him all his handshakes, gave him all his praise, uh, and told him, man, we got to get the next one. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. It's unreal. Um, just to see his focus and uh, all the thing, all the things he taking into account when he's out there on the floor. It was crazy. Uh, we were on the bench on the last game and uh, during a timeout, and he just, you know, gave me another nugget. You know, he was like, "Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm reading that defense. I, 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 I know what our offense gonna do." Uh, and man, when we were playing the Pelicans, uh, he was getting everybody the ball in the perfect spot, and it's just little things like that 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 you pick up. Um, over time, but with, but with Chris Paul being there and telling me, you know, it's coming a little faster. So them little nuggets, he's, he, he's letting us know, letting me know um, it's big time uh, going into uh, the rest of the games. So I love this quote because, um, you know, obviously it's a two-part or the first part about campaign and, and, you know, saying that this moment was special for them in the locker room and what was going on behind the scenes, but also just the way that he describes what Chris Paul is still doing at this stage of his career and, you know, how much he's rubbing off on him as a teammate, how supportive a teammate he is. Because when you think of assists, you think of setting up your teammates to succeed, but um, there's a lot more to setting up your teammates to succeed than just passing them the ball. And Chris Paul is that quintessential teammate who you know, he'll not only get you the ball in the right spots, but he'll also set you up for success individually when he's not even on the floor as far as pointing things out, you know, uh, nitpicking certain things, letting you know where coverage is, just all those different things. And Chris Paul is just the ultimate pro when it comes to that kind of stuff. So it was kind of cool to hear campaign talking about that and, and just singing his praises on a night where he had definitely earned that right. Um, but let's segue into our main topic of today's show, which is the Suns three-point shooting. And this has been kind of an area of contention on Suns Twitter for most of the season, if we're being honest, because the Suns have fully embraced the three-point shot in a way that we have not seen in a while, um, you know, since probably the seven seconds or less Suns days. Um, and obviously the league has adjusted and come a long way on that front since then, but the Suns have been trying under James Jones to become a better three point shooting team. That's been his MO. That's the type of player that he targets. We've seen it time and time again with the guys that he drafts and Cameron Johnson and Jalen Smith to the guys he targets in free agency, you know, guys like Jay Crowder, um, Etwan Moore, Langston Galloway. He wanted to put as much shooting around Devin Booker as possible. And he's, He's definitely accomplished his goal. Um, but early in the season, despite having all these reputable shooters, um, despite having, you know, Chris Paul, who could set people up, Cam Johnson, who's a sniper, Jay Crowder, who's a streaky but overall good shooter, um, the Suns weren't really shooting that well. You know, when they started off the season 8-8, eight and eight, they were only shooting 35.7% from three which ranked 18th in the NBA. And that's not exactly what James Jones had in mind. And we had asked Monty about that in the past, and he had been saying, you know, he's happy with the quality of shots. They're just missing a lot of wide open threes. And as a fan, when you're watching a team play and they're missing a lot of wide open threes, it can be easy to, you know, dive into that, that old adage, you know, live by the three, die by the three. 
And I got to say, I hate that saying, not because it's not true, but because it applies to literally everyone in the NBA now. Like the NBA has changed so much. The three-point shot is more important than it's ever been in the modern game. So it's kind of obvious. Like if you make your threes, you're going to put yourself in a better position to win basketball games. If you are missing threes or if you're not a good three-point shooting team, you're going to have a much harder time making up for the mere math that three points is more than two. So it's not, it's not anything special. Um, you know, there's, there's kind of that old school way of thinking, like if the threes aren't falling, you got to attack the hole. You got to get to the free throw line. You got to, you know, drive in there, stop settling for threes. I get that. And sometimes on a game to game basis, that can definitely be true, especially on a night when the shots just aren't falling, you need to attack the rim, you know, get to the free throw line that helps shooters get in a groove. I get all that. But if you're still getting quality looks as the three, as the Suns were from three point range for a lot of those misses, you got to still take the good shots. Like the variance will kind of average out there as long as you're getting quality looks and the Suns were getting quality looks. They just weren't making them. And with a lot of these shooters reputations, we knew that they were better than what we were seeing on that front. So we've kind of seen a turnaround since that eight and eight start. Um, you know, the last few games in particular, the last two games uh, against the Pelicans, the Suns made 22 three-pointers, which tied a franchise record. And then they broke that the very next night by making 24, um, which obviously new franchise record. Um, and since they've gone on this 11-2 and two tear, they've won 11 of the last 13 games. So over that 13-game stretch, they're shooting 40.6% from three, which ranks fourth in the NBA over that stretch. Um and, you know, they've shot better than 40% from three in seven of those 13 games. So they've been shooting the ball very well lately. Um, you know, they've had a couple of stinkers, but that's going to happen from night to night. Luckily, one of them was against the Celtics, and they actually pulled that game out. So they're proving that, you know, with their defense, they are still able to win games even when they're not shooting well. But when they are shooting well, the Suns are a very difficult team to guard, and they're starting to live up to kind of that offensive potential that we expected because – I don't think we expected the defense to be this good, you know, a top 10 unit, which is something the Suns haven't had, oh, I don't know, ever. But their offense is starting to get on the right track as well. And a lot of that can be attributed to their three-point success. So overall in the season now, the Suns are shooting 37.7% from three, which ranks 11th entering Sunday's games. We're recording this on Sunday. Um, but I want to talk about the variance there. Because that live by the three, die by the three thing, as much as I hate that saying, it kind of applies to the Suns more than it applies to other teams after kind of looking into the numbers here. So I'm going to throw some numbers at you, but I promise we're going to, we're going to make a point out of these numbers. Um, so the Suns are shooting 41.3% in wins and 31.9% in losses. Um, that's a big contrast. And, and, you know, it logically follows that in a league where three-point shooting is more valued than ever, you know, teams are going to shoot better percentages and wins than they are in losses. You're not going to shoot the same percentage of wins and losses because that is how instrumental the three-point shot is to success in this league. It just logically follows that on nights when you lose, you probably didn't shoot as well from three. Um, so that applies to literally every single team in the league. Every single team in the league posts a higher three-point shooting percentage and wins than losses right now. But in looking at all the differences, 
I, I've went through all 30 teams and looked at the differences, and I'm sure there's an easier way to do this than doing this manually. If anyone wants to send me a comment with where I can find this information more readily accessible, that would be great. Save me a lot of time. But that 9.4% percentage point difference, so the Suns shoot 41.3% in wins, 31.9% in losses. That's a difference of 9.4% there. That difference is the third highest variance between wins and losses of any team in the NBA. The only teams that have a higher variance between their three-point percentage and wins versus losses is the New York Knicks, who are a younger, streaky team, not a very good team, um, and the Boston Celtics, who, as we've seen lately, have come crashing back down to earth. They're barely above 500 anymore. Neither one of those teams are teams the Suns want to um, you know, kind of duplicate their success or their three-point shooting right now. Um, and the average percentage around the league in losses from three-point range is 33.3%. So the Suns are slightly below that at 31.9% in their losses. Um, and the average variance between wins and losses for three-point percentage by team is 6.8%. The Suns are at 9.4. So there's a huge difference there between how they're shooting in wins and how they're shooting in losses. And like I said, you can expect that sort of thing. Um, every team's three-point percentage is going to be lower in losses because that just makes sense. That's how tied in three-point success is to winning and losing. But the Suns are living out that that old adage of, you know, live by the three, die by the three, because they have a better record than either the Knicks or the Celtics. They have a huge variance there between wins and losses. And we've seen it play out a lot of times when they let other teams climb back in. The Suns are missing their three-point shots. And when you're missing that many threes, it can kind of wear on you mentally. And we've seen that crossover show up on the defensive end when they start, you know, they, they fail to get stops when they need them. Um, so it's all kind of tied in together, especially for this team, especially for a younger team with a lot of new guys. Um, those things are all going to be tied together. So definitely something to keep an eye on moving forward. I, I think the three-point percentage is starting to average itself out. We're starting to see how good of a three-point shooting team this is. But keep in mind, on those nights when the three ball is not falling, when those open looks are not falling, it's going to stand out a lot more for this team because they attempt a good number of threes because they generate a lot of open looks. So when they're missing those shots, it's going to be even more frustrating to watch because a lot of them are good quality looks that just aren't falling. And so it's easy to fall into that trap of saying, no, they got to drive more. They're not, their offense is just, you know, it's all three pointers. It's not entirely true. Um, a lot of teams' offenses rely heavily on that shot, and the Suns are generating good looks from those shots. They just got to knock them down. And that's what we're seeing lately, and that's what we're seeing contribute to the success that we've seen over the last couple weeks when they're on this 11-2 and two tear. Those shots are falling. So don't fall into that trap of thinking, you know, if the Suns' threes aren't falling, that they're not, you know, that their offense is flawed or that their approach is flawed. It's literally just a matter of it's a make-or-miss league, and the Suns are starting to make those shots. But uh, we're going to take a quick break and be right back after this. All right, so obviously this is a little bit quicker of a show because we've covered a lot of angles over the last few weeks. We've covered the Kaminsky Aiton lineups. We've covered uh, all-star cases for Devin Booker and Chris Paul. Covered a lot of good Suns stuff. And, um, you know, with these last two incredible wins there hasn't been that much different to talk about from what we've already kind of been building up to over these last few weeks so 
a little bit quicker show today, but we had to give you another G-rated segment. And for today's G-rated segment, we're going to be talking about the last 10 episodes of the series Vikings, uh, which is on the History Channel. And uh, you can watch it on Hulu. But I wanted to give some extra time for this one because uh, the last season has been out for, I think it came out end of December. So it's been out for like a month and a half or so. Um, but, you know, there were 10 episodes. So wanted to give you guys a little bit more time to catch up, watch those last 10 episodes and finish off what was, I thought, a very good show. I feel like it is, uh, it was kind of like a Game of Thrones light in the way that it, um, it set up all these different characters' motivations and uh, the way that they would form allegiances with each other, a lot of plotting, a lot of scheming, um, a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes that leads to these uh, epic battles that have, um, they have more impact because there's so much on the line when they would mac- you know, mix and match certain characters against each other. And uh, it did a really good job of managing all those different character motivations and plot lines. And um, it, it was very good in that regard. I, I'm pretty sure the American version was a little dulled down in terms of the graphic nature. Cause I know I'm pretty sure um, abroad it's a lot more gory. At least that's what I've heard. Um, it kind of felt like at times when you're watching Vikings here, like you're watching, you know, Gladiator on TV where they kind of like edit out a lot of the blood and the gore and stuff. Like, you know, you see the sword slash, but you don't see like the actual wound from it. I felt like Vikings did that a lot, but it was still a very good show if you're into these types of war shows, you know, like Game of Thrones, where there's a lot of kind of uh, political intrigue behind it too. And I, this was one of my favorite shows that I binged during quarantine. I watched the first, uh, you know, five and a half seasons in like a month or two probably during quarantine and fell in love with this show. It's really good. There are a lot of cool characters. Um, you know, Ragnar Lothbrook obviously is the main guy. And I've heard people say that they kind of fell off the show once he was, once he was gone. I won't say what happens to him, but once he was off the show, um, some people fell off. But I felt like, honestly, the show kind of peaked with his son's Uh, And their war, you know, Bjorn Ironside versus Ivar, that stuff was great. You know, Ivar, the, he's a cripple, but he, they, okay. In later seasons, they kind of like just forget the fact that he's a cripple because they gave him these leg braces that suddenly allow him to walk. But because I think they just got tired of being inconvenienced by the fact that every scene he was in, he'd have to be like crawling on the floor or held up by somebody or sitting down. So they kind of just like said, fuck it. We're just going to pretend like he can walk now. But uh, they built him earlier in the show. They built him this awesome chariot that he could just stand in. And Ivar is, he's scheming, he's diabolical. He's an incredibly smart and ruthless character. So when they finally put him in this chariot so he could actually be on the battlefield, and, you know, this guy can, like, throw daggers and stuff. He he's obviously can't walk, but he's well uh, well-versed in handling a weapon. So when they put him in this epic chariot and had his side battling Bjorn's side in these battles where there's all this kind of strategy and these different characters going head to head, like brothers fighting brothers. Um, I felt like that was when the show hit its peak. This last season was not quite that. I felt like it, uh, in its defense, it wrapped up better than Game of Thrones. So that's positive. But 
that's also not really saying much because Game of Thrones was a train wreck for that last season or two, honestly. Um, but yeah, I, I felt like there was a lot, uh, a lot going on in these last 10 episodes that wasn't really that compelling. Um, so spoiler alert, the halfway point of season six, it's, it's season six is divided into t- uh, two sets of 10 episode. So it's got, you know, 10 episodes. And then the second half just came out in December, the last 10 episodes. I feel like it didn't need a full 20 episode season to wrap things up, um, especially because the mid-season finale ends with Ivar fatally stabbing Bjorn, which, um, you know, I'm going to suspend my disbelief that this crippled guy just kind of wandered through the battlefield without being seen and then stabbed the most legendary warrior in all of Viking lore just because he wasn't paying attention. I don't know. I, I had a hard time with that, but it was the way that episode was filmed, the way it, it had these, not flashbacks, but kind of these imaginary um, renderings of what their conversation would look like if it was just the two of them sitting down on a beach talking to each other, despite this raging battle that's going on all around them. Like that was an incredible setup and just kind of the cliffhanger of Bjorn being stabbed, him falling down, um, and just his sword kind of stuck in the ground on that beach, like symbolizing like this is the last stand of the Vikings, basically, um, because he's their last living hero, sort of. Um, that was incredible. That was a great way to go into the second half, wondering if Bjorn was dead, whether he lived. Um, and I was kind of surprised that uh, he did not live, spoiler alert, but he doesn't live. And so Bjorn is supposed to be this like legendary Viking figure, like a real life person. Um, But in the show, I'm struggling to think of what he accomplished that created this mythos around him other than like his most notable accomplishment was losing a rigged pirate king election, basically Viking king election. Like that was the most notable thing that he did. So I was kind of stunned that they went, they went through with that. And the first episode of the, last 10 um basically deals with his death and i thought his death was handled very well it was an epic kind of finish for ivar that cemented him as more than just a man but like you know he still died in that battle he didn't win a lot of battles he didn't conquer a lot of territories he was never viking king really um so it was kind of interesting that he was immediately taken off the board. And I think the last nine episodes or so suffered for it because there were a lot of plot threads that weren't really that compelling. Um, So Bjorn's death was cool. I didn't really care for Uba's storyline. He kind of uh, takes his family, takes some Vikings who want to explore in the same vein as his father, because his father was mostly there to explore these new lands. He didn't want to, I mean, he did, pillage and conquer these other places but that wasn't really his mo so ube takes his family off and they you know find this new land and they're searching for this new land and they go to a bunch of different places over the last two seasons and it was just kind of slow the whole time um i did love that they brought floki back um i am struggling with how he survived being in the middle of a cave and it collapsing around him (laughs) in iceland i think it was or greenland can't remember which one but uh, it was nice to see him back. And the final scene of the entire series is him and Ube talking about letting the past die, looking to the future, um, kind of leaving the Viking tradition and its barbarism in the past 
to settle this new land and, and build something new, which, you know, the show is basically ending with the downfall of the Vikings. So it makes sense. It was a beautiful send off for the show that paid tribute to Ragnar, to Floki, to the entire show in, as, in general. Um, so I really liked that last scene, but Ube's storyline was very um, just kind of boring for most of those last 10 episodes. And there wasn't enough going on with a lot of these characters to warrant another 10 episodes. Like, I, I feel like most of it could have been wrapped up in like five, maybe. Um, and, and it's, you know, like I said, it sets up the downfall of the Vikings because Ingrid, who is kind of the witch, uh, is ruling over Kattegat when the show ends. It's kind of unfortunate that they're setting up the downfall of this uh, Viking civilization with Ingrid taking charge. But um, yeah, I, I just felt like the show hit its emotional peak with Ragnar and then again with Ivar versus Bjorn and their feud and their battles. Um, you know, there's Lagartha and I don't remember his name, but he was basically the hot priest or whatever. Um, King Harold versus his brother, all in that same battle. Like there was a lot going on. Those were really cool scenes. And Ivar at his most ruthless was he was arguably the MVP of the show. Like he just stole the show with his performance. Um, but yeah, I, I just felt like I, maybe my biggest problem with this season is not just the way that, you know, the fact that Bjorn went out with nine episodes to spare, but also the fact that like, at least he went out cool. Ivar went out like a bitch. And I hate to say that that way, but like he was his, whole thing was that he's ruthless, that he is this incredible uh, schemer and, and divisor of plans and, and battle strategies. And, you know, he goes back to England to kind of conquer King Alfred's territory um, and do what his father told him to do, which was to be ruthless and to, you know, make sure the world remembers his name, even though he's a cripple. And then it just kind of, it builds up to his downfall as far as like when his eyes are super blue, that means his legs are, his bones are in pain. His legs are in pain. Um, and so he's basically on the battlefield and he just kind of gives up because his eyes are super blue and his legs are just giving up on him. And I guess that means he's dying. I don't, I don't know. He just lets himself get stabbed multiple times. Um, he sees that his brother Vitzerk is wounded and it was just very an anticlimactic end for Ivar. And it was a weird one too, because he was like crying and like scared when he died. And I, I get it. Like, you know, he had never experienced death before he had been ruthless this whole time. But like, if the guy is that like Eve, not evil, but you know, demented and, and just sort of vicious. And then for him to go out like that, like it felt like a complete reversal of who his character was and, and what his purpose was because his whole purpose that his father had given him was to be ruthless, to make the world fear him. And then in his last gasp, it just kind of sets it up like everything that he went through was just kind of a lie. Like deep down, he was just a scared little boy this whole time. <laughs> so maybe I'm reading into it wrong. I would love to hear your guys' thoughts if you've watched the final 10 episodes, but I really did not like the end to Ivar's character. Felt like that could have been much better. But uh, for my G rating for this, uh, for the final season, I'm going to give the final season a 7 out of 10 um, because I felt like it was good, but not great. Uh, it wrapped things up. And we got closure, which was nice. And 
I still enjoyed watching the final season. It wasn't bad by any means, but compared to the highs that the show had reached before then, even as recently as the mid-season finale of season six, um, the last 10 episodes were a little too uneventful for my taste, even though I really did like the final scene and I liked the way that they handled Bjorn's death, even if it was too soon. Um, and my G rating for the show as a whole, because you know we can't judge a whole a whole series by its final season, otherwise nobody would watch Game of Thrones. <laughs> uh, so my G rating for this entire show is an eight out of ten. Uh, it was at an eight point five, but the last season kind of bumped it down a little bit for me. But if you haven't watched Vikings, it's all on Hulu. You should definitely check it out. A lot of cool characters, a lot of great performances. Um, it's just a very cool period of, of history to craft this dramatic series about. So definitely check it out. Um, but that's going to do it for this episode of the Valley of the Suns podcast. Please write me a review uh, with a couple of shows that you're watching. And uh, thank you all, as always, for listening. This is Gerald Bourget signing off.